Mana 3 Media. Welcome to First Listen. I'm Derek. Hey, I'm Justin. First Listen is a series of conversations where you'll hear from individuals their stories of what it's been like to grow up black in America. Me, Sabrina. So I'm Sabrina Jenkins. So I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, born and raised uh, up until the age of 21 when I moved to Nashville. I grew up in a very multicultural environment. Um, I was sheltered as a child, grew up in a very religious environment, but uh, people around me were always from other countries and I was always one of the few black Americans. Uh, my neighbors across the street, my best friends growing up were Puerto Rican. Uh, the ones next door to me were Cuban. The ones uh, the other side were Haitian. So I grew up around very multicultural. It's not what you hear very often uh, from black Americans unless they live in a certain like certain small parts of America. So I consider myself very lucky in that sense because I grew up around people who English was not always their first language. And I kind of was the minority of minorities, if that makes sense. And so I grew up eating rice and peas. I grew up eating pollo. I grew up, you know, knowing Spanish, the language. Um, and I loved every second of it. It was very normal for us. We, at Christmas, we celebrated Christmas, but we also had plenty of Jewish friends who celebrated Hanukkah. Uh, those same Puerto Ricans who lived across the street were Jewish. <laughs> so we grew up taking off. We, we didn't go to school on like Rosh Hashanah. We didn't go to school on, you know, Yom Kippur. We, we, we were very, even though I grew up in a very Christian religious home, we were very respectful of other people's religions and other people's cultures as well. I got to be around people who had a different, who looked at America in a different way, which was nice. Uh, the only issue with it is when you leave there, you are <laughs> faced with the rest of America, which looks totally different from what I grew up with. So that was a shock. So I always knew what racism was because my my mom's from South Carolina. My dad is from Miami. Um, and they are both children of the 60s. When my dad was born in 57, my mom was born in 1960. So their parents obviously, you know, dealt with racism. And my mom told me that she was in middle school when schools became desegregated in her area. So um, we were always aware, but my parents were more of the people that kind of gave us books and showed us movies about it instead. So I was probably about five when I started learning about what racism was. Uh, we watched movies about the Little Rock Nine, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., my mother. We were big on books in our home. She always was giving us books to read about it. So I knew that racism existed. Um, I didn't, what I, what I dealt with more in South Florida was I dealt with people looking at me differently because of the way I was raised and the way I spoke. Those two things were like the thing. So in maybe started elementary school, they started calling me white girl and that went on all the way through high school. That's Sabrina. She's a white girl. She's black, but she's a white girl. She talks white. And you know, I, I grew up in the 90s, so I watched Sister Sister and Tia and Tamara and Oprah and all these people that spoke the way that I speak, and I looked up to them, and so that's just how I, I, I ended up talking. 
in South Florida, you don't really have an accent. You just kind of, I mean, there's too many accents around you. Pick one. That's the accent you're going to go with sort of thing. So I didn't, I didn't, we didn't have very many moments where we were faced with racism. My piano teacher was this old white woman. She was great. Um, I went to a private school for my, the first couple years of my life and all of my teachers were Hispanic and they loved me. I don't know. I, I didn't deal with that. We had one incident where my dad got a new car and one of the white people in the neighborhood said, um, what bank did you rob to get that car? That was the first time I noticed it. Maybe I was 10 or 11. I had to really digest that, but I will say it never left me. Like I always think back to that moment where I was, what I was doing, what my dad was doing. His response was actually just to laugh it off, which I think that that's just his uh, defense mechanism is just to kind of pretend like it's not that, that that statement wasn't a racist statement. So I work in the childcare industry. That's what I've been doing for uh, over 16, 17 years now. Worked as a preschool teacher, um, early childhood educator, nanny, uh, then I worked as an administrator in the preschool world, in the franchised preschool world. And then from there went on to own my own business, which is what I do now. So I own Elite Nannies of Nashville. Um, when I first moved to Nashville, I said, I got to get a job. That's the first thing I need to do. I'd always work with children. So I went to Franklin, Tennessee, um, because I saw probably who even knows on Craigslist or something. I don't even know. How do we even find jobs back then? I can't even remember, but we, I went to Franklin, applied for a job over the phone. Uh, like I was telling the lady and she invited me to come in and the lady rest her soul. She just passed away this year. The, the director of the preschool that I was applying for, she, I came in the door and she said, hi, can I help you? And I said, hi, I'm Sabrina. I'm here for the job interview. And she said, Oh my God. And I said, what, what? And she said, I'm so sorry. I thought you were going to be white because over the phone you sounded white. And then your name threw me off. And I said, well, no, it's, it's just me. And we interviewed and she hired me, but I, that moment I realized, Oh my God, like <laughs> what is, first of all, what is Franklin, Tennessee? Uh, secondly, where are the white, where are the black people? I was the only black girl that worked there for years. That was my first, uh, experience in Nashville where there were these microaggressive behavior type of things going on. When you work in childcare in any, any, any way, shape or form, and you're black and you're a woman, I mean, obviously in the back of your mind, if you are somebody who has been educated about the history of black people in this country, you know that what you're doing, your grandmother probably did and your great grandmother and your great, great grandmother probably did it as a slave. You know what I mean? So you're taking care of white folks, kids <laughs> for a very little amount of money and you're doing it with a smile and your the expectations are always going to be high for you because you know, you're a black woman taking care of babies. This is what you do, if that makes sense. So um, from that situation, there were other awkward moments, but for the most part, people were nice. Um, one awkward moment was we had a baby shower for someone in, in the school. And one of the games you play is like you pick out, you, everybody puts their baby picture up and you have to pick out who is who. 
as an adult. And that was very interesting being the only black person. Duh. Obviously the one black baby picture is mine. It's just funny, but it just kind of gives folks a reminder as to like just how whitewashed that area in that school is and how they must have done a really poor job of recruiting staff to work there. Uh, other incidents, maybe I would stop at the store on my lunch break and pick up an Ebony or Essence magazine. And my boss would tell me, I don't understand why you have to have magazines for black people. And then it would go into the conversation of why do you have the NAACP and why do you have this and why do you have that? And then I would find myself explaining why, you know, well, we have magazines for black people because how many times do you see a black person on the cover of your, of the magazines of people, of Vogue, of whatever other magazines, you don't see it very often. So we created our own magazine so we could see ourselves in them. Oh, well, I guess that makes sense. I didn't experience the whole like going into a store and people following you sort of thing until I came to Tennessee. <laughs> like people following you around the store asking you, do you need anything? Do you need anything? Do you need help? Um, or assuming that you took something. Um, when you walk into a fancy department store, that one of the things. So when I first moved here, everybody knows like Mall of Green Hills. That's the fancy mall. That's the mall where people go to when they want to spend money on expensive items. And so you walk into Tiffany's, you walk into Louis Vuitton, Gucci, what have you, and people are immediately following you around as if you're going to take something and run out. <laughs> that's what I would, that's what I experience anytime I go to like those stores. You, I always feel very intimidated, especially. Um, my last experience with that was going into restoration hardware. Uh, they built this beautiful new restoration hardware in the Mall of Green Hills. And I went there with a friend and we were followed everywhere we went. I was like, do they think I'm going to take a lamp and run? I don't understand. It's a furniture store. There's not much you can take. Followed everywhere we went. People of other races were not followed. It was me and my girlfriend walking around being followed everywhere. And it's like levels to the store. You got to go upstairs. Same people would be following us around. And I said, oh my God, we're they're following us. And so ugh, that's always annoying, but it's also, there's an intimidation there too, as well. You feel a little bit intimidated going into places like that, whether you can afford it or not. I mean, my most recent was my husband and I trying to buy a house and the, um, me telling the, what is it? The leasing agent, the person in charge, um, that I own my own business. And they're like, well, you're going to have a really rough time gathering your taxes together. And I said, why, why do you say that? They were like, well, do you do your taxes? And I just thought, I wonder if he would have asked me this if I was a white man. <laughs> like, I wonder if he would have said, do you do your taxes? Like, why would I have not do my taxes and try to buy a house? I was like, yes, of course. I have a CPA and a bookkeeper and all of my books are together. I have them right here. And he's like, oh, What's well, going to take you a while to get them together? And I said, I, I just said, I, I have all of my taxes. I have everything that's needed. What, what do you mean? It's like, well, do you, do you have a business license? If I'm telling you that I own a business, why wouldn't I have a business license? I just had a hard time believing that if I was like a white man who owned a butcher shop, that this would even be going on, like that I would even be asked those questions. And he continued to, to ask me questions like that throughout the whole process. 
um, repeatedly ask me the same questions about my business status, um, whether or not I do my taxes. It was very strange. And I was like, wow, this is blatant racism. It's like right in my face. Um, the fact that he, but then when I told my husband that about it, he at first didn't think that it was racism. And I was like, you'll see. And it just kept going on and on. He, well, maybe you guys should aim lower. Maybe you shouldn't get a new house. Maybe you should get a, an older home. Why do you say that? There was like no reason. And for a long time through the process, he didn't even want to include my, um, he didn't want to include my, what is it? My earnings. <laughs> he said, we just don't know where that money is coming from. I said, well, that's why I have a bookkeeper and a tax and a person doing my taxes to tell you where the money's coming from. Where do you think it's coming from? Like, I didn't understand it. So that was like very in your face, very blatant. And I think it had a lot to do with me being black and being a woman business owner. Like, I don't think that he liked that very much. And I told him how much my business brought in for the last year, what, 2019 taxes. And he laughed. <laughs> so it was just very interesting. And he wanted us to, he, we could, we could totally afford the home. That was the weird part is we could afford the house. It wasn't like there was some weird things going on where we were just aiming too high. It was very strange, but, um, he was an older white man in Brentwood and he just kept telling me, I've been doing this a long time and you're lucky to even be getting this house and just awful things. So that was like my last, you know, racist situation. And just to be belittled and talked down to in that way was awful. Um, but in the end, I'm, you know, I'm reporting him to the proper people. <laughs> so yeah, he'll, he'll get what's coming to him for sure. But I try to take the intimidation and use it as fuel um, to just combat it or either that or face it head on and call it out. You know, I mean, I'm a human being, so I have feelings and sometimes I'm going to feel discouraged or intimidated by a situation, but I just try to take that and use it as fuel to push away or combat or, or confront. So before I started my business, I was a director of admissions and it was me and two other directors, two blonde white ladies. And we all were on the same wavelength. We all had the same amount of experience. I probably had more than them, but we all were like on the same wavelength as far as like, we, we all deserve to be in those positions, if that makes sense. Um, but because I was one of three and the other two ladies were white, I always was like the first to jump up and say, I'll do it. Or <laughs> the first to take initiative to get things done. Um, I was the hardest working person there, 100%. And my bosses were two white ladies. And so it was me and <laughs> four white ladies. <laughs> and whenever there was conflict, it was, Sabrina, you know, I noticed you roll your eyes. Or Sabrina, I noticed you made a face. Or you come across as uh, abrasive. You come across as flippant. Um it was, it was an interesting time. I think people were learning that I was just, I was, I'm a strong individual and I have, I stand on, I stand firm on my opinions about certain things. And, uh, if I'm asked in a room 
Well, okay. So let's say it's me and the two other ladies and we're asked, do you have a problem with X, Y, and Z? And the two ladies don't say anything. And I do. Well, now I'm the abrasive one. I'm the, you know, mean one. I'm, you know, whatever attitude. And, uh, it's not about that. It's about the other two were scared to say something and I'm not. So I'm going to say something, but I think that sometimes people take our strength and they either use it against us because they're probably jealous or they take it and they think she's fine. She'll be fine. Like she doesn't have any feelings, that sort of thing. And so many times I wasn't rolling my eyes. I wasn't, (laughs) you know, doing the things that they said I was doing. I was just talking normally, you know, and they would take, um, healthy confrontation and turn that into you're, why are you so angry? Why are you yelling? I'm I'm not yelling. I'm talking to you just like this. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Um, but my counterpart could yell, scream, cry, slam doors, walk away. And they would just go, Oh, that's just how she is. She'll be fine. Sort of thing. Or apologize to her and give her what she wants which I always thought was interesting. Um, but my, my bosses would say to me, you know, this isn't your school, right? This is my school and I'm going to do things my way. And I'm thinking, why do they feel the need to tell me that? As if I don't know that I work for them. It was very interesting. Um, but that's kind of what you get with, when you have a strong personality, the angry black woman thing. I'm not sure exactly when it started, but it, I, my assumption is it probably started when black women started speaking up for themselves and saying, Hey, I'd like to vote. Hey, I'd like to be paid the same amount as my counterparts for the same job. You know, no, I'm not going to take the discrimination anymore. And somehow that with an Afro and a fist in the air turned into angry black woman. But it's really just people who are saying, Hi, I would like the same treatment as the others. Thanks. (laughs) You know, so that was annoying and very draining, very draining, especially when you know me and you know, I'm not an angry person. Like I'm not even that person. So, but what was interesting is all of the parents in the school loved me. They always came to me when they needed something. All of the teachers absolutely loved me. Um, because I would meet them where they were on their level and and of course the children. So it was hard for them because I knew that they didn't like me working in the position that I was working in, but I was so good at my job that it was hard to, you know, be upset with me, but they were, they didn't like it. They, they wanted me to be, um, more shy, more quiet, more, but that's not my personality. And if you ask me if something's wrong, I'm going to tell you something's wrong, you know? So I thought that that was interesting. I did call it out. Um, I said, I think that it's very interesting that the, the black girl has the attitude, the black girl's flippant, the black girl, this black girl, that, and they were like, (gasps) you know, and you know, they're like family. So it's, 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 I don't work there anymore, but it was a very interesting time. And I think they had to face some of that themselves. Like, Oh my God, I, because they're the, they're the, they're the white women that are like, I'm not racist, but they didn't realize they had some of these microaggressions that they were dealing with. And it really put it out there in the open. (laughs) So that was interesting. Um, when I left, everybody was devastated, so sad. Um, but it was time to go. It started becoming toxic, you know, and I kind of got tired, you know, after that, 
incident that had been what 12 years of being the only black girl in a white and if you think the way that I was raised that's not how I was raised I wasn't raised the only black girl in a in a sea of white people so I just was tired and it was draining I had an incident once when I was teaching preschool you know you work in preschool and there's a, a lead teacher and assistant teacher and then the the children and I was one of those teachers. I was always there. So four years, four years in a row, I was a two-year-old teacher, great at my job. And there was this one teacher that worked with me for a year. I'm not going to say where she's from, but she's from the Midwest, I guess. And she was one of the most closed-minded, ignorant people I'd ever known. And she, she would bring up these topics while we were working together. And it was during um, Obama's second term. He was about to be elected for the second time. And she would say things like, do you think slavery really happened? And I would say, what do you mean? And she would say, I mean, I know it happened, but like, did it really happen the way that they say it did? Those are the kind of questions I was asked. And that, and I would just spend my time trying to educate her on certain things. Like there was one black boy in our class that year everybody else was white and she's like he's so cute he looks like a little monkey and I'm like here's why you can't call black people monkeys in 2012 you know what I mean and I, I was just tired so yeah I, I knew I got the idea in the middle of the night one night to start my own nanny agency and I quit my job two weeks later that's how tired I was I was like forget it I'm out of here so um when I started my own nanny agency, I knew immediately that white women were going to be my focus because that is what Nashville is. I strategically marketed towards them. <laughs> and since I had all those years of training with white women, I knew exactly how to talk to them. I knew exactly how to meet them where they were. Um, and then I also used it as kind of a, um, a learning point. You know, many times when I would knock on the door and a white client would open the door, they thought a white lady was going to be on the other end and it was me. <laughs> and they would be like, oh, oh, hey, hi, c c come on in. It's stuttering. Like, and I always thought I always got a kick out of it. I think it's funny. But at least I get to sit down with them in their homes and talk to them about what my business can offer them. And give them a, a little bit of a lens into maybe breaking some barriers there as to what they think black women are and what, what, how we are and, you know, making that connection with them, you know, which I just used it. I used it to my advantage. <laughs> I used being black in this industry to my advantage. I knew that the other nanny agency owners in town were all white. They were all moms, stay at home moms. And I thought, well, here I am. I'm black. I'm not a mom. I'm going to use this to my advantage. I'm going to say, listen, I have all the time in the world to work for you because I don't have any children. So um, let's do this. I mean, I didn't know how to start a business. I kind of just axed around and um, put pieces of the puzzle together myself. And um, I think, I think for the, in the black community, you know, we know how to open a restaurant and a nightclub, like in <laughs> a hair salon and a barbershop. But me saying, I'm going to start a nanny agency. People were like, what? A what? What are you going to do? You're going to be a nanny? I was like, no, I'm going to start and own a nanny agency. 
They didn't know what it was. They still don't know what it is. It's okay. Um, so I kind of just did my own thing, kind of created my own lane. And now there are two other black agency owners in uh, Nashville, which is great. So more of us came along, the more the merrier. But um, I do notice that I appeal more to people in Davidson County, which is probably one of the more democratic, more liberal counties. Um, I don't appeal as much to people in Williamson County, Franklin, people like that. So I would say 70% of my clients are in downtown Nashville because many of, many of the people that move to Nashville specifically, um, Nashville proper are from other places that are, uh, less segregated. So New York, DC, um, the West coast, you know, like where they're used to seeing black people and working with black people and not having those prejudices. I'm one of those people who, where my stance is obviously Black Lives Matter. Um, it's hard for me because my friends are Black men and Black women, and my husband is a six foot seven, 300 pound Black man. And then when you hear and see stories about big Black men being choked to death by people who are supposed to protect and serve us, I don't feel like it's a wave. I just feel like it's just what happens here in America. It just it has never ended. This is an ongoing thing. I think we just see it more because of social media. Um, so it's more in our face with the cameras. Everybody has a phone. So we see it more. So it's a little bit more traumatic in that way. But I can't say it's more traumatic than what our people went through 50, 60 years ago either, you know, um, it was in their face. It was just live. You know, they watched people die and be beaten and be abused in front of them. Instead, we get to watch it on Facebook or Instagram. But I wish it would end. I don't think that it will. Not here. Not in America anyway. And it's traumatic and it's scary. And I think that we as black people should do things to make sure that we're keeping ourselves healthy um, mentally while we go through all of this, because I don't think that it's going to end. My husband will say, I'm going to go out for a jog. And all I'm thinking about is Ahmad. You know, I'm like, oh my God, last black man that went out for a jog got shot and killed. And his killers were, you know, chilling. So it's, you, you just have to compartmentalize. Otherwise you're just going to live your life in fear. You're going to have panic attacks every day and it's going to be awful. Um, when it comes to work, like it's tough. It's tough to work with people who aren't talking about it. Um, when you work for yourself, it's a little bit different, but still, I mean, you can't answer the phone. Elite nannies of Nashville. I'm sorry. I'm having a bad day because another black man was killed by the police. How can I help you? <laughs> you just have to, you know, compartmentalize and find times to grieve and to hold space for that sort of thing. It's tough. Like one of the things I have to think about when running my business was, for some reason this year, I guess everybody had time. All these businesses had time and I guess they want to be on the right side of history. So everybody was putting out statements about Black Lives Matter. And it's like, wow, I never knew that Disney felt that way or whoa, who knew? Target felt Black Lives Matter. Why is everybody talking about it right now? It's just very interesting. I think that just people just had time and they and it's a voting year and people want to be on the right side of history. Um and all I could think about was, should elite nannies release something? Should we say something? I mean, I'm black, so they should know how I feel about Black Lives Matter. 
Um, but I did end up releasing a statement based, uh, just based on, um, the events, but I, I made it clear that this is not a trend for me. Like I live my life on a daily basis being black in a world that, you know, or in a society that isn't always on my side. So, um, it was, it's, it's been interesting to say the least. The feedback has been good, but I was scared to do it because I didn't want to lose business. I mean, it's my livelihood and the majority of my clients are white, but I just put it out there. I was like, the majority of my clients are white and I was scared to, but I just feel like if you just tell people <laughs> instead, so I was like, the majority of you are white which makes me afraid that I'm going to lose business. You know, if I just put it out there, then I felt like, you know, it is what it is. And I don't want to work with people who are racist. So, and it turned out to be just fine, but it was scary doing something like that because I usually don't say anything on my professional platform about Black Lives Matter. I would say to white people who really, you know, want to get our perspective and want to learn more and want to do more, what can I do to help? I would say first educate yourself. Stop going to black people, asking them to educate you. We're exhausted. We can't do it anymore. And it's not our job. Like we don't come to you asking you about your history. We don't ask you. We know all about your history. We know all about American history and all the things that they left out that include us. There are plenty, plenty of books out there, plenty of resources out there to help white people understand our perspective in this country and where we stand on things without them having to pull from us. Um, for people who are silent, I don't really have much to say to them. Like you're silent, so I'm gonna be silent with you. We don't really have much to talk about because what I'm not gonna do is try to pull something out of you that isn't there. Either you want to do what's right or you don't. If you are silent, you are definitely complicit in perpetuating racism, absolutely, yeah. So, and, that, and that's fine. I'm just putting you in the same category as the people that are blatantly racist. And so that's where you go. There's no middle ground with this. You're either right or you're wrong. People like that, when they speak up, they can shake rooms and change things. And also it's just important to stand up for what's right, you know? And, and um, sometimes justice is just speaking up at that Thanksgiving table and saying, nope, you're wrong. You're either gonna end up on the right side of history or you're gonna end up on the other side, which your kids, their kids will read about one day. So what side do you want to be on? Arguing and being combative, uh, arguing people on social media, that's like the thing now. Everybody just gets on social media, argues. It does not create change. And your parents, you know, it's a, it's a, a gray area because you love your parents. And you want to, <laughs> you know, continue to have a harmonious relationship with your parents. But I think step one is realizing that your parents are just regular people, too, and they're not perfect and that your parents have um, their own things that they have wrestled with and their own life experiences that way before you got here. And so that just needs to be a resolve. OK, my mom, she's a person, too. I'm, I don't I wasn't always in her life. I don't know exactly what she went through. Um, maybe my mom will see the change in me and want to join me and maybe she won't, but that's, it's not my responsibility to educate my mother or my father, if that makes sense. 
if you are with more like-minded people, you guys will create the change and people will want to come to you. So there are so many places where you can start, but I think you should go with what you're passionate about. So for me, I'm passionate about um, ecosystems, you know, in the black community, I think creating jobs for other black people is a great place to start. And so I own a nanny agency. So I'm able to get black nannies, well-paying jobs, right? And then they're able to take care of their families and they're able to get more education in that way. But there's so many things you can do. I think you should just go with what you're passionate about. If you're in education, get on those boards, make those changes. If you're in politics, um, make sure that you're getting out there and you're making changes, starting with the smaller forms of government. We have to really get to the root of what America is based on. We have to get to the root of the Star Spangled Banner. We got to get to the root of how this country was founded and the Declaration of Independence. You can't expect from me to celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day, when my people weren't even free when it happened. It doesn't make sense. I think that you can be patriotic and not be racist for sure. But we got to get to the root of things first. And we got to apologize and denounce some things. And they haven't done that yet, which is why this is still going on. Other countries have done that. You look at um, Great Britain and they, you know, apologize. You look at places like Australia, things like that. They apologize to the Aboriginal people, things like that. This country was founded on the backs of slaves, right? And you have Black people that are coming up. Um, out of nowhere, here's this black man that became president after 40 something other presidents were old white men. And not only was he black, but he was cool. He had swag and he had a black wife that was beautiful and two beautiful kids. Um, those black people that are coming for power and position are just wanting to create change. And they actually are more for harmony than the people that aren't going for power and position, which is very interesting. But they're all what we all share is the same. We have this shared experience that we all have gone through. It's a brotherhood. It's a sisterhood. And but at the, at the same time, like I said before, we're strong people. Black people are extremely strong. We have shown that. Right. We can we can get through the worst of things, but we still cry. We still have feelings. Um, I think we should make sure that we're humanizing black people when it comes to depression, anxiety, it's so mentally taxing and so draining all the time. Like so many times I'm just exhausted. That's why I decided to work smarter and work for myself because at least then I didn't have to be in an environment where I felt like it was a toxic work environment. I remember when Trayvon Martin got killed and I had to go to work. That was horrible because nobody's talking about it. Nobody. And so, but they like, it's, it's like an elephant in the room. Here I am, this black woman who, you know, is grieving this black child that died, um, for no reason. And I'm just supposed to go about my day and work and just, it's, it's very traumatic. It's very traumatic. And I think that us as black people should realize we are going through traumatic experiences. This is not normal as much as um, society wants to make it normal by using social media. Like when you see people getting killed on Instagram and Facebook and things like that, or on the news, you see a black body just on the ground and people just standing around and nobody's doing anything. That's not normal. That's traumatic.
and it should be treated as such. You know, we can't normalize this. Um, definitely find yourself a therapist who um, is on the same page as you, of course, and talk it out. And then, you know, if you find yourself having anxiety or you find yourself having panic attacks or you can't sleep at night, don't underestimate a good psychologist <laughs> or psychiatrist, you know, talk to someone about it. There might be something out there that can help you and help your brain function a little bit better and help you to remain calm or more calm in these situations. People are just dying left and right around us. And we just keep going, we keep going, but we cry, we get upset, we get angry, uh, we get afraid, we, we get scared. Black men get scared, they get afraid too. You can't tell me that when, when we're getting, when black men's getting pulled over by the police, he's not scared, you know? Those are all valid feelings and um, their mothers, their fathers, their sons, daughters, cousins, um, we have a spirit, a soul, and um, we live and we die. And it's important to know that, you know, our deaths are just as important as the deaths of a white person or a Hispanic person um, or other Asian, um, anything like that. And we deserve, we deserve a fair shot and we deserve equal treatment. That's all we're asking for. We're not asking for much. <laughs> we are literally just asking to be treated equally. And um, I hope that one day we're able to get there. So I like Sabrina's story, right? It really takes, uh, and thinking about some of the other conversations that we've had, mm -hmm. it takes a, a different approach and stance. And one of the things that I noticed about Sabrina's, which really I can't think kind of showed uh, through about who she is as an individual is that at the age of five is when her parents started educating her mm. about race and racism in America, even though she didn't have to experience those things early on right. in life. When she did experience those things, uh, she was somewhat prepared for um, for what she would experience. Right. I loved her phrase that uh, she described herself as a minority uh, amongst minorities. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the diversity mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. she came from uh, yeah. in South Florida. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think the, the story that stuck with me, a couple, the couple of her stories, uh, the story about her dad getting a new car. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, what bank did you rob to get that car? Right. Um, you know, that could be easily laughed off like it was from him. Mm -hmm. um, but it stuck with her, you know, 30 odd years later, 20 odd years later. Yeah. Um, it's something that had left a mark mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and much like some of the stories from like Rachel and her childhood mm -hmm. um, from a previous episode. Um, it's interesting to hear what seems like smaller instances um, that, that could be construed as just, you know, harmless or whatever, yeah. but are, but, but have a deeper meaning, have mm -hmm. a deeper impact mm -hmm. Um, because of race. Yeah, yeah. She talked a lot about those microaggressions, right. uh, even in some of her workspaces. Like mm -hmm. uh, when she first uh, actually applied for the job, you know, in, in Tennessee, 
And when she got there, you know, with her name being Sabrina, and she talked about how, when, you know, growing up, even her friends would say, you know, she's 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 black, but she's she's the white girl, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it was just interesting to see that when she did the interview or spoke to the person over the phone right. about the job, their shock and amazement to actually meet her. And then she said that, yeah. you know, the person actually coming out and saying, well, I, I didn't expect you to be black. Right. You know, I, I, I thought you were you were white you yeah. know, from your name and hearing and speaking with you on the phone, which, you know, to say actually say that out to somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't know how how they're going to take, take right. that or respond. One of the things that she talked about, too, that was um, kind of kind of new for me mm-hmm. um, growing up white um, was the the notion or the idea that when you go into a store mm. being followed, oh, yeah. like, yeah. I, I, and this is my ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't know that was a thing. Like, yeah. I didn't, I, I've not experienced it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like, obviously that, you know, that's my, that's my white privilege. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not followed in stores. Yeah. I don't, I didn't know that that was a regular thing. And that's a common theme yeah. that we're hearing in all of these stories. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, at, you know, as, as a black person that that's actually probably one of the first, microaggressions that 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 you'll experience because it's it's not uh oftentimes they don't have to say anything but you know they stand back you know a few feet but just kind of follow you throughout the store and it's again a a microaggression we deal with on a on a day-to-day basis can you talk a little bit about the the actual term microaggression just unpack that a little bit yeah yeah so the the microaggressions those those are the the subtle uh, but intentional uh, acts of, of racism um, that, you know, someone may pick up on um, or a black uh, individual, black or brown individual who um, is subject to that may pick up on or, or may not. Um, but but it's intentional. It, 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 it may not stop you from achieving what you are intending to achieve within that situation. Um, but it, it, it almost is a, is a power thing. It's, it's almost a thing where that individual is trying to communicate, you know, um, I'm in control um, or let me put you in your place. Mm. Right. And, um, and 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 so and so it happens. It almost keeps you um, prisoned within your mind. Right. right? And, and then, you know, going back into similar situations. So take example, uh, as we talked about going into the store and someone mm-hmm. following you. Right. And, and so you wonder now, next time you go into a store, is that going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. Right. And so you're, you're now your brain is preoccupied with things that, you know, you probably shouldn't even be processing at that moment. You right. don't have the freedom to just live and do and be intentional about doing exactly what it is that, that you're trying to do. And so you see that a lot with the microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not fully present sometimes because I'm sitting here processing and a lot of times individuals will process internally and they won't say something if they notice that that microaggression. I think individuals now are are becoming more um, more aware Mm -hmm. uh, of the microaggressions and are are speaking out and saying things um, to, um, you know, to counter counteract that. So that's great. Well, we loved our conversation with Sabrina. Um, We appreciate her being vulnerable and sharing her story with us. Thanks. First Listen is hosted and produced by Derek and Justin and is part of the Mana 3 Media Network. We'd love for you to click subscribe and tell a friend about us. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. 
For more information, check out our show notes, and we hope you join us for our next episode, dropping very soon.